We are in the middle of a series where we're taking a look at the early churches in the book of Acts. And I'm always struck by the very first sentence in the book of Acts. You can even go and turn there if you want to right now. But what it says is that Luke is writing, same writer of the Gospel of Luke, and he says in the first book, O Theophilus, this is the person he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so Acts is meant to be read as what Jesus continued to do and what Jesus continued to teach through these churches. And we're getting these snapshots of how Jesus continued to work, what he continued to do starting in Jerusalem and spreading out throughout the Mediterranean, the Greco-Roman world, and we've been looking at each of these churches. We've been asking, what can we learn about what it means to be a church where Jesus is still active, where he's still working? So we've looked at the church in Antioch, we've looked at the church in Jerusalem. Last week we looked at the church in Philippi, and today we're looking at this church that started, and we just read the story of how it started from Acts chapter 17 in a city called Thessalonica. So this is down the road from Philippi. There's a main road in the Roman Empire called the Via Ignatia. And so Paul was kicked out of Philippi, we learned last week. He goes down the road to the next major city in the area, which was Thessalonica. And so here we see the picture of what happened. And if I were to summarize what we see happen here is Paul shows up, he comes into town, we would see here a lot of disruption. All kinds of crazy things are happening. There was a mob, it says, that was formed to kick Paul out of town again. In verse 8 it says the entire city was disturbed. And in verse 8 there's an accusation made against Paul in, the, in this little church that started there in Thessalonica that these are the men who have turned the world upside down. And now they've come here to our city. So I thought as I was reading this that the best way to describe this little picture that we get, just eight verses of how this church began, the best way to describe it is through this phrase, disruptive church. Now, our, um, our family, I shared with you uh, maybe a few weeks ago that when we were sent off here to Orange County a couple months ago, we were sent with Disneyland passes. So our kids were super excited and we've been going to Disneyland as much as we possibly can. But there's been one particular ride there in California Adventures. It's the roller coaster screaming, screaming, California screaming, where we've taken pause and we've separated the men from the boys, or should I say the women from the boys, because the roller coaster is unique in Disneyland because it goes upside down. And our kids were looking at that and they're like, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that. So. Amelia did. She went on it with one of our sons, but I have to admit, and maybe it's going to call my manhood into question, but I took pause and said, I don't know about that. Because the last time that I flipped upside down on a roller coaster ride was at Magic Mountain, and I think it was Batman. And that was like super intense, and I was flipping all up and side down, and by the time I stopped the ride and we stopped, it was like, in my vision was a slot machine, and the world was going up, down, and just was like going like that. I was like, that has never happened. And I was left with a headache and a little bit of a fear of going upside down on a roller coaster. Well, why do I share that? 
I share that because it's a picture, it's an illustration of what will happen when the message of Jesus genuinely strikes us. When we experience the message of Jesus, it's going to cause us disruption, as we see here in this passage. Not just a little disruption, but this kind of disruption that turns our world upside down. So whenever the gospel comes into our lives, into our church, into our city, we should expect disruption. We should expect disruption, and not just a little bit. We should expect upside-down, world-turning disruption to happen. So we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to look at three, three things. If you're following along in your outline on page 5, you'll see those points. We're going to look at the cause of disruption. We're going to look at the effect of all this disruption. And then we're going to look at what are the benefits of all this disruption happening. So first, let's look at the cause. The cause of disruption is that the gospel is a disruptive message. When Paul arrived in Thessalonica, the first thing he did is he looked for a place. Where can I share the message of Jesus? And so he began in the Jewish synagogue. And what's highlighted there by Luke is his approach. How did Paul go in and share this message about Jesus? Luke highlights how Paul did this, his approach, using three words there. And you'll see them in verses 2 and 3. It says, he reasoned, he explained, and he proved. So a quick few thoughts on just these words, how Paul went in. He reasoned and he proved. This shows us that faith is not opposed to reason, but the normal process of someone coming to embrace Jesus, become a follower of Jesus, is through a process of reason and thought. And engage mine. And secondly, these terms imply that this was a two-way dialogue. Paul wasn't just standing up there and talking and leaving. He was having conversations. He was anticipating questions. He knew this was a difficult message, and so he was meeting people where they were at and having a dialogue about how they were responding. And this is, in many ways, kind of an upside-down approach to how many of us think about evangelism and Christianity. That evangelism isn't about shouting loudly or being combative or manipulating any emotions. It's not just a monologue or a one-way conversation where we take the floor. It's most of all, when we speak about Jesus with other people, we speak with an awareness that what we're sharing is something that's potentially very disruptive for them. And Paul knew that. He spoke with care and concern and thoughtfulness whenever he talked about the message of the gospel. So we see that Christianity doesn't put a wedge between faith and reason. But when Paul explained the message of the gospel, this crazy disruptive message, he did so with reason. He did so engaging the mind. So that's the approach. But if Paul was so reasonable and so thoughtful and he was so considerate and careful in how he shared the message, then why all this disruption? Why did this all happen? And the cause was not how he shared the message, but the cause was in what he shared, the content of his message. And as you're looking at these short uh, eight verses, we don't have a long summary of what he said. Like elsewhere in Acts where we get the whole sermon or the whole speech. But we have a short summary there in verse 3. And it says there in verse 3 that it was necessary, this is what Paul said, and what he was explaining, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming 
is the Christ. So this short summary, sort of summary of what Paul said, that's all we need to understand why all this disruption ensued and happened. It's the same phrase that's used by Jesus in Luke 24. This phrase, it was necessary. In Luke 24, after Jesus rose from the dead, he meets with two followers of his. They didn't recognize him. They didn't know who this was who was approaching them and talking with them. Their understanding of the Bible had no room for this idea of a crucified and risen Messiah. So Jesus is talking with people who followed him for three years. And it says there in Luke 24, 25 through 27, after he explains to them that it was necessary for the Christ to rise, to die and rise again. He says, O foolish ones to these disciples, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So those three little words, it was necessary. Theologians have a term for that. They describe that as a divine necessity. That there was a divine necessity from God's perspective that if anyone were to be rescued and returned and reconciled to him, that the only way that would happen is through the death and the resurrection of his son, of a suffering Savior. And what Jesus and Paul are saying is that if you don't see this, if you don't see this necessity, then you miss the whole meaning of the Bible. And this is so disruptive to all of us because it completely flips upside down our approach, the approach we all have to the Bible. When, when you're teaching your kids to read, those of you who have had kids, and you're just starting out and saying, okay, here's letters, here's a book, here's how it goes. Sometimes you might find your kids and they have their book and they're reading it upside down. And they're pretending to read. And that's very cute, but you just have to say, okay, here's how you do it. You turn it right side up and you go from left to right. This is how we all start when it comes to reading and understanding the heart, the core message of the Bible. We're holding it upside down. Most people think of the Bible and Christianity and that the essence and the message of, Bible and, of the Bible and the Christian faith is this. In order for you to be approved and to be accepted by God, to become a Christian, to be blessed by God, here is what it's necessary for me to do. Here's what's necessary for us to do. Be a good moral person, Ascent to these beliefs, do these religious things. And so we come to the Bible with this mean necessity lens, not the divine necessity lens. Paul and Jesus are saying, no, this is a book about what it was necessary for Jesus to do for us, his death and his resurrection. And that turns everything upside down. If you think of the context of what's happening here in Thessalonica. What if Paul came to this city and he said, I have a message for you. I've come to show you how to live a good and moral and successful life. That would not have been disruptive at all. There were other people talking about those things. There were the Stoics and the Epicureans and other philosophies that would not have been disruptive. What if he came and he said, we've come to talk to you about a more religious life, to be more serious. Also, that would not have been disruptive. 
The people in the synagogue were having those conversations. In other places, that would have been normal. Or he could have said, we've come to talk with you about adding a little spirituality to your life. That would not have been disruptive either. There were many gods and goddesses and mystery religions of the time that offered that message. But what if he said, we've come to talk with you about how your ultimate and most important need is a suffering Messiah who died and rose again and who asks you to submit your entire life to him as king. Now that is a disruptive message. That's going to cause disruption. That's going to change people's perspective and get a reaction. And that's the message that turns the world upside down. The necessity of a dying Savior means, on the one hand, that we're so broken and sinful that it's necessary for our salvation to come from outside of us. But it also means that God loves us and values us so much that it was necessary for Him to do whatever it took to restore us back to Himself. These two things make the message of the Bible, the power of the Bible, come alive in our lives. A few thoughts of application. This means that those who know their need for Jesus are those for whom the Bible comes alive. Are those for whom the transforming power of the Bible and its message is activated in their lives. Whether we're new to the Bible, whether we're really familiar with the Bible, we continually need this disruption to happen in our lives. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it very provocatively. He says, A cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. That's a very disruptive statement. It gets our attention. And we need that. The point is that we continually need to flip the Bible back right side up. Because we're often reading it upside down. And this message of the Bible, of the divine necessity, it needs to disrupt, it needs to displace our mean necessity approach to our lives. That runs so deep in our souls. I know it runs so deep in my soul. A lot of us have a very perfectionist performance soundtrack that I, I would call it a soundtrack that's running in our hearts. That's always telling us, here's what you need to do to improve your life. Here's what you need to do. That's not enough. You haven't done enough. You need to do more. It's up to you. You can't be needy, and you can't be weak. If that's the soundtrack of your soul, then you need this disruption to happen in your life. There's a, a pastor, a seasoned pastor, who's been a mentor in my life, and I haven't seen him for a while, but I'll never forget the last thing that he said to me. As I was spending time with him, we were catching up, I dropped him off at the airport, and he said, Eric, never stop needing Jesus. And so I just drove off, and I was like, okay, that's cool. But that just kept ringing in my heart. Why did he say that? Eric, never stop needing Jesus. That simple phrase, I need to repeat that to myself, deep in my heart, to disrupt that soundtrack. That it's not about what I need to do, it's about my need and how God has met that need in Christ. So that's the cause of all this disruption. The gospel is a disruptive message. Secondly, let's look at the effect. 
Let's look at the response and the effect that happened to this disruptive message. And the effect is that the gospel disrupts the status quo. But we see in Thessalonica what happened is that no one was neutral. Some were persuaded by this message and others rejected the message and stirred up this mob to attack Paul. But no one was indifferent. That's because what we're seeing here is that the gospel disrupts the status quo of every person and of every culture. The status quo meaning the way things are. The is, it is what it is approach to life. First, let's look at those who rejected the message. In Thessalonica, those who rejected or opposed the gospel were those people who were most committed to their status quo. Many of the Jewish leaders saw this new community being formed around Jesus. They didn't respond to this message, Luke tells us, with a reasoned approach, with thoughtful questions. Instead, it says they were jealous. And so they stirred up this mob, they got this rabble and wicked people and tried to drive Paul and the people out. Why were they jealous? Now, scholars would say that it's because those who were aligned with the synagogue, their fellow Jews, these God-fearers, these leading women, they joined this church, and now they were upsetting the social religious status quo. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, were not supposed to be on equal spiritual footing. But here they were, in this new community. And so they didn't listen. They didn't reason. They didn't consider the message. They were too resistant to the disruption in their, in their power, in their place, in the status quo. Same thing with the Greeks. The Greeks who were disturbed and they kicked Paul and his team out of the city were resistant because they saw this message in this new community as disruptive to their status quo. They heard the charges that were being brought against the Christians. They were subverting the world. This was revolutionary language and that they were proposing allegiance to another king, not Caesar. This message could cause all kinds of disruption to the political and social status quo. So they had heard enough and said, you guys need to leave. They didn't give it a proper trial. They didn't give an investigation into this. They said, this is going to be too disruptive, so we have to end it. So both the Jews and the Greeks who disregarded, who rejected the message, were both concerned about the same thing, maintaining their status quo. And that was their main barrier to receiving the message and giving it a thoughtful response. What's the point? The point is this, that Christian conversion and growth is most difficult for those who have the most to gain for keeping their status quo intact. That Christian conversion and growth is most difficult for those of us who have the most to gain for keeping our status quo intact. It will be the hardest for us to listen and to be impacted. What about those who were persuaded? If you were listening to the story, you noticed that there was a focus on one person in particular. This guy named Jason, who's mentioned four times. Which is a lot for nine verses. He's mentioned four times in this short story. Luke wants us to pay attention to this guy Jason. This new church was meeting in his house. He said, you guys can meet here. He was willing to have the target put on his back. And the mob is all stirred up. It says they couldn't find Paul and his team, so they said, let's take Jason. They take him before the city council. And then we find out in order to be let go, he had to pay the authorities the price. I guess it was kind of like a bail price that he needed to pay to be let go. 
and become free from this whole rabble and this craziness that was stirred up. So here's Jason. He chose to put the target on his back. He chose to sacrifice himself so others would be set free, so Paul would be safe and wouldn't have to deal with what was happening. So instead of the status quo, here's Jason. A picture of a life marked by the sacrificial, sacrificial service and love. Again, we see not only from the Jews and the Greeks who disregarded the message, but from Jason that Christian conversion and growth always involves a disruption. This disruption to the status quo in our lives. And so for us, a question. If the gospel isn't disrupting our status quo, then we have to ask ourselves, am I missing it? Am I missing it? If Jesus never asks us to give up something that we don't want to give up, if He never challenges us or moves us to serve and to sacrifice in ways that make us uncomfortable, we have to ask ourselves whether we are missing the gospel altogether. And this is especially challenging for us who enjoy and benefit from the status quo in the upper middle class, middle class people. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in London many, many years ago, and he was preaching on this same passage. And I want to read to you how he challenged his congregation. He said to them, If you are ever converted, you must have as great a sweeping out as the poorest man that ever lived. There must be as true a turning upside down in the salvation of an earl, or a duke, or a lord, as in the salvation of a pauper, or a peasant. He's saying... Those who have success, whose lives are comfortable and easy. It's easy for us to look down upon those whose lives are a mess, or apparently they have needs that are more obvious than ours, and say they need an upside-down change in their lives. They need some disruption. They need Jesus. But until we all see that we need that same upside-down turning in our lives, we'll remain in our status quo. And that's a challenge for us. Because we live... In Orange County, we like our status quo. We want it to be 75 degrees every day. No more, no less, we want it comfortable. We want a happy, peaceful, easy life. And often our prayers are focused around asking God for those things. But this passage is forcing us to ask, could I be too comfortable in my status quo? There could be many areas that this question applies to our lives. It could be that in our comfort and in our success, we avoid the Bible's clear teaching on God's heart for justice and the call for us to serve the poor and the oppressed and the alien and the stranger. Another application of this, it could be concerning a part of our character, something in our character that's a flaw, something that's a struggle, something that maybe bothered us in the past, but now we've become pretty comfortable with it. I don't know if I'm ever going to change. Maybe it's just who I am. What's the point? Or maybe it's in our marriage. We've kind of accepted the status quo. We've tried some things. Things haven't changed. And we just accept that this is just the way it's going to be. This passage challenges us to maybe prayer, pray a new prayer. 
A prayer that would say, Lord, how do you want to disrupt my status quo? With the upside down power of the gospel. We talked about the cause of the disruption was the gospel itself. We talked about the effect, which was a challenging and disrupting of the status quo. Now let's look at the benefit of disruption. The benefit is that the gospel disrupts us in order to turn us and the world right side up. I don't know if you did this when you were a kid, but did you ever lay on the floor and tilt your head way back so that it looked like the ceiling was the floor and the floor was the ceiling, and you start to imagine what it would look like to walk around on the ceiling of your house. We were doing this the other day with me and my boys, and I remember doing that when I was little and thinking about, oh, I've got to jump over the ceiling fan and dodge that and get into the other room by jumping over the, the top of the door frame and all that. The benefit of the disruption that the gospel brings is that it completely reorients our world. So we're living right side up instead of living upside down. It's like we've been looking and living at the world by walking on the ceiling. But the disruption that the gospel brings into our lives is that it flips us right side up. I want to look at a couple benefits of this disruption. One, we see how God reveals what we're truly hoping in for change. And two, we see the benefit of disruption is it's how God, in fact, changes us. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. It says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now there's so much irony here in that statement, because that statement is, on the one hand, false, and on the other hand, profoundly true. Let me explain what I mean. What I shared earlier is that one of the benefits of when God brings disruption in our lives is it shows us, it reveals, it exposes what we're hoping in for change in our lives. In this crazy mob scene, Luke wants us to see, he wants to clarify that what's happening here is this was a charge brought against this little new church of treason. This had to do with politics. This had to do with a charge of revolution against the empire, against Rome. And he wants to show us and be very clear that Paul and this church were not looking to turn the world upside down. They were not looking for change through political revolution or through political power. And he's revealing a very important point, a very important theological and practical point, that Christianity's hope for change of right side upping the world is not through the vehicle, is not through the means of political power. And I know there's a lot happening in the world of politics today and we're thinking about it surrounding us. So this is especially relevant for us to think about in our country and in our season right now. We feel very disrupted, I think a lot of us, by what's happening in this current election. There's much we could say. There's a lot of questions we might have about this, but this is an opportunity for us, again, to remember, to clarify, to reveal what is our hope for change. 
How does God turn the world right side up? And to remember that Jesus' kingdom, as Luke shows us here, is independent of and not dependent on any particular political system, any particular political ruler or nation. Our hope for the future, the focus of the mission of the church, is not primarily in elections or parties or politics. These have very important places. Focus is not on who is the president or what country I live in, but on following Jesus as king. No matter what system, no matter what ruler, no matter who is president. I want to read a quote here from Gerhard Lofink, and I think I have it here for you on the screen. He says this, It is true that Jesus never called for a political revolutionary transformation of Jewish society. Yet the repentance which he demanded as a consequence of his preaching of the reign of God sought to ignite within the people of God a movement in comparison to which the normal type of revolution is insignificant. Luke is showing us through this scene, this mob scene of disruption, that the hope for change, that this movement that would be ignited to right side up the world is not going to come through politics, but through the kingdom and through the gospel of Jesus. So these charges were false. Because the, the gospel is not about setting up a new political order or starting a revolution to replace Caesar. But these charges are also true. Because the gospel does turn the world upside down in every way by calling people to follow Jesus as king. In our 9 a.m. hour, we're doing a reading Matthew class. And as we've been reading the gospel of Matthew together, one chapter at a time, we were reading this week from Matthew 8, 9, and in that section of that gospel. And there we read in those chapters a picture of what it means, what it looks like that Jesus came to turn the world upside down, or rather turn the world right side up. We see there he was cleansing the leper. He healed the servant of a Roman centurion who was suffering terribly. It says he took all our illnesses and bore our diseases. He calmed the raging storm. He drove out demons. He raised to life a young girl. All these were pictures of the healing, of the restoration of the world That Jesus is turning the world right side up. He's restoring the world to the way it ought to be. But what struck me as we were reading these incredible pictures of Jesus right side up in the world was right alongside that, with these stories of healing and restoration, right alongside those stories is Jesus' call to follow Him, to trust Him, with absolute and full surrender and trust. He says... After these pictures are happening, people approach him and they say, We want to follow you. He says, The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Somebody said, I want to follow you, but first I have to bury my father and take care of that. He says, Let the dead bury their own dead. I think the point is, he's saying to them and to us that I'm going to turn your world upside down, that you have to lose your life in order to find it, to take up your cross and follow me. And that when he does that, when he turns our worlds right side up, it's always disruptive. Which is the second point in the benefit of disruption. Disruption is how God changes us. If following Jesus as king means he's turning our worlds upside down, it means that the most 
disruptive times in our lives are in fact our best opportunities to grow. Often we see chaos happening in our lives, when our lives are crazy, when they're not happening the way that we wish they would happen, that this is a sign that God is far from us, that God is not working in our lives. But here we see that it's actually a sign that God is present. That when there's disruption, it means God has come near and He's at work. Why? Well, this idea of the divine necessity, that in order for us to be restored to God, that it was necessary that Jesus first die and then rise again, that that pattern is also true for our own lives, for our own growth, for our own maturity and the changing of our character. That we must die first to truly live. We take up our cross daily to follow Him. And that is almost always disruptive. It's always going to feel like our lives are being turned upside down. But in that turning, God is at work. I came across a great quote from another pastor named Eric Dirksen. He said, Allow for significant disruption. Welcome it. Welcome God, the great disruptor. In my pastoral experience and in my life, I've never encountered a great marriage. A marriage that you would look at and say, I want my marriage to be like that. That hasn't first gone through some significant disruption. Had to deal with significant issues. Had to work through hard stuff. It's in that disruption that that marriage was refined and beautified. And I've never met a person who has deep wisdom and joy. The kind of person that you would go to when your life is falling apart and disrupted all over the place. I haven't met a person like that who hasn't themselves experienced significant and deep disruption in their own lives. This is the pattern of how God changes us. So right now, whether you're experiencing a time of small disruptions in your life. You might be in a place where your life is being completely upended. I want to say to you, take heart. God is at work. It's the pattern of how we change. And in that disruption, God is working to conform you more to the image of His Son. This is how God ends the reign of our sin, of ourself, and He brings our lives under the reign of this other King, the new King, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this passage, this story of how the Gospel is at work even in the chaos and the disruption of our lives. I pray for us, knowing that we can be very resistant when our lives are out of control, when you're doing things, when you're challenging our status quo, we can be very resistant and put up walls. I pray you'd break those down and you would meet us. That you would challenge us if we're too comfortable and if we are discouraged and if we are struggling because life seems like it's crumbling beneath us, I pray you would bring great encouragement and hope 
that we would know that these are the times when you are at work to rebuild us and remake us. We thank you, God, that though you are the great disruptor, you are also the great comforter. You are the great healer. You are the one who is right side up in the world. We give you thanks that it's your power and it's your work that does that. We pray you would do that work even this morning in our lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.